Open your Bibles, please, to John 16. Have you been enjoying the weather lately? (laughs) We've had a regular old country buffet of weather, haven't we? Sunny and comfortable, snowy and cold, cold and bright blue clear skies, hail, rain, overcast. Just take your pick. When I was in college uh, down in Oregon, which the weather is very similar to here, the Boys from California always whined about the weather. I said, hey, if you don't like the weather, just wait a minute and go outside and check. It'll be different, you know. A few years ago, Don and Ann Hubbard gave me one of those thermometers with an outside temperature gauge that transmits to the digital screen. I have that in my office so I can tell how, how, you know, what the temperature is outside. I love it so much I got one at home. I have it in my family room. See, I'm sitting in the chair watching TV, and when the, when the weather person says... You know, it's 29 degrees. I can look over and I can see what our temperature is compared to their temperature. I really need to get a life, don't I? <laughs> oh, I want to take you to a, a thermometer this morning. A spiritual thermometer. Not one that tells us the atmospheric temperature, but one that tells us the spiritual temperature. Look at John sixteen thirty-three. These things I have spoken to you in me that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This is the last verse in a a section of truth that Jesus has been sharing with his disciples. Chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, uh, we... In, in, in commentary type books, or Bible study books, they'll call it the upper room discourse or the upper room sermon. He's been teaching them a series of things about what's going to come, about how they should live, uh, just a number of things. In chapter 17, it's going to be all a prayer from him to his father. Chapter 18 starts the events of the crucifixion. This is the end of his special teaching for the disciples preparing them for ministry after he's gone. And the very last thing he says there is, I have spoken these things to you so that you might have peace. One of the great benefits of the Christian life is peace. I think it would be accurate to say that one of the great intentions of God in our salvation is peace in our existence here on earth. I have given you these things so you might have peace. And so I, I want to consider today this whole message, which really starts, the, the conclusion of his message starts back in verse 16. And he gives us three elements to how we can have peace in this world. Let's read the whole story here. Verse 16, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, What is this that he is saying? A little while. We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew what they desired to ask him. They were having that discussion among themselves. But Jesus could read their mind. 
He, he knew what they desired to ask him, so he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. But the time is coming when I, no longer, I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I shall pray to the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father, and I have come into the world, and again I leave the world to go to the Father. His disciples said to him, Now! You're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, it has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and you will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The first thing that we need to understand today about peace is this. Peace comes from trusting God's plan. Uh, If you're like me, uh, if you haven't read this passage of Scripture in a while, and I haven't read this passage of Scripture in a while, you're reading it going, like the disciples, this is kind of obscure. And you're also looking at all those verses and going, if Pastor Dave's going to preach on all those verses, we're going to really be here a long time today. But the good news is that's not what I'm going to do because there is a broad theme, especially in this first section, which teaches us something that that is a little obscure. It's a little hard for us to get our mind around. But the point of it, I believe, in in the first uh, six verses is this. Peace comes from trusting God's plan. You see, when we read this passage of Scripture, we do have the advantage of of, of standing out here in 2001, not in uh, A.D. 33 or 34. We're looking back, and the disciples were on this side of it looking forward. And Jesus was saying, now... A little while, and you won't see me, and a little while, and you will see me, and there's going to be sorrow, and then there's going to be joy, and they're looking around going, what in the world? Now, we can look back from our vantage point and go, okay, I I can understand part of that, because what he was saying is, guys, you don't know it, but we're going out to the garden, and in just a little while, I'm going to be arrested, and you're going to be scattered, you're going to run like scared sheep, and they're going to take me in, and that's going to lead to my crucifixion, and, and that will result in my death, and you will not see me. We can understand that because we have the rest of the story. But they're on this side of that story going, what is going on? 
Verse 16, he says, a little while you won't see, and then you will see. And verse 20, he says, when these events happen, it'll be sadness. We obviously know he's talking about his death, and that caused them great sadness. And then the resurrection comes, and they're reunited with Christ, and they have obvious joy. They're going, wow, he's alive, and they're all excited. And the illustration of childbirth is very appropriate. Woman goes into labor, it's hard, it's painful, that part of it's unwelcome. And then comes a little boy or girl, and we call that little person the bundle of joy. And he's, he's saying, you know how it is when a woman's in childbirth, it, boy, that is not a happy time. But when the baby comes, then it's happy. And I, I, you know, he probably used a little bit of pastoral exaggeration when he says that they forget the anguish of the childbirth. <laughs> Because I keep hearing women talking about that 30 years later, so, you know, I'm a little bit of an overgeneralization there. But what does this have to do with our experience of peace in Christ? Here's what it has to do. Look at verse 33. I have told you these things that you might have peace. I've told you these things that you might have peace. Christ said that he told them what they needed to know in order to have peace. But did he tell them the whole story? Clearly not. If he would have told them in our mind the whole story, he would have said, okay, here, here it is, guys. Look at your watches. In a half an hour, we're leaving here and we're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, then I'm going to go away and pray for an hour, and you guys are going to fall asleep, and I'm going to come back and rebuke you. And then about that time, a bunch of soldiers are going to come, and and he would have gone right through the story. And then I'm going to go to the high priest, and then they're going to spit on me, and they're going to hit me, and then they're going to pound nails in my hands and feet. That would be our form of the whole story, right? Did he tell them the whole story? But he said he told them enough that they could have peace. So he looked forward and he says, look guys, some things are going to happen. I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be back. Here's the big thing that I believe he told them. He said, I have a plan and I'm working it out. I have a plan and I'm working it out. What would they have done if Jesus had told them exactly, exactly what was about to happen? Well, we know Peter would have tried to stop him from going. Because he did that earlier. He said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. And Peter said to him, far, excuse me, far be it from you, Lord. And what did Jesus say back to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. Peter, in his, let's call it uh, affectionate zeal, wanted to preserve Jesus from difficulty and wanted Jesus to become the Messiah, the king, deliverer of Israel in his own way. And so he was saying, no, don't go to the cross. And, and that, was, that was a lie from Satan. <laughs> and so God did not tell them everything, every single thing that was going to go on. As it was when they got to the garden and the soldiers came, Peter whipped out a sword and whacked off a guy's ear. And I don't think he was aiming for his ear. Right? Jesus picked it up and put it back on. He said, Peter, now's not the time for that. God knows what is best for us, and he leads us to that best in a way that is best. 
And he often does so without telling us the details ahead of time. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But do you know that God has a plan and he's at work and he has given you a lot of broad principles to guide your conduct and he's essentially said, look, here's what's coming. Now will you walk with me? Could it be that that's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight? And could it be that that's God's goal? He wanted these disciples to say, look, guys, think back over the last three years. Have we made it through? Have things worked out? Have some great things been done? Yeah. Okay, let's think about the next three years. You know what? I'm still in control. There still is a plan. I'm still at work. But you don't know exactly what's going to happen. And in fact, what did happen was they went through a tremendous amount of turmoil and struggle. When did the disciples really understand what Christ was doing in the world and in them? When did they really understand that? They understood it when they got over here a ways. After Christ died, was buried, resurrected, went to the Father, came back for 50 days or, or a little less than that, and then he left again, and then there's the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes, and all of a sudden they go, Oh! When will you understand exactly what God is doing in your life? I would submit to you that you will have flashes of that throughout your life. That you'll come to a point and you'll look back and go, Oh, there it is. God had to do this and this and this to get me to this point to do that and that and that. And what should happen at those points is we should go, You know what? I'm just going to trust God's plan. I'm not going to sweat the details next time, because there will be a next time. What do we have to believe about God in order to have peace? We have to believe that he has a plan and that he's working it out whether we can see it or not. Look at verse 20. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and you will lament, but the word world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Here's a truth from the Old Testament that could have helped them if they remembered it or known it at that point. For thus says the Lord, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Now let me set the stage, because right off the bat you're thinking, that's kind of obscure, Pastor Dave. This is talking about the people of Israel going into captivity because of their sin. Now, right up front, God had told them through the prophet that this was going to happen and so on. But they didn't really understand the whole process and they didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And look what God says. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. When God sent the people of Israel into captivity to punish them for their sin, was he doing what was best for them? Yes, he was, because he was trying to get them to return to a true faith in him. It's an example of Hebrews 12, when God talks about disciplining us to get us to walk in the, in the right Christian way and not walk out on our own sinful way. 
The key thing is this. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of peace, to give you a future and a hope. When God allows circumstances in your life, or when God creates them, whichever it may be, is God at work for your good? We've got to believe that, even though we can't see the details. We may understand the details later. I think if we don't get that flash of insight during this life, I think we will get it in the next life. Because it'll be one of those things that we'll be able to bring to God in worship. And we'll go, oh, God, you know what? I wanted to go this way and you didn't do it. Thank you. I can see your great, peaceful, good-intentioned hand in my life. Is God at work in your life now? Is God at work in your life now? Now, I know you're saying that because I did this. I want you to just stop and maybe just say that to yourself internally. God is at work in my life now. I I, I can, uh, probably with every one of you that I've spent any time with, I I could know some of the negative things in your life that you wish weren't there. We all have those things. We all have those things. But God is still at work. And we've got to trust his hand. If we want to have God's peace, we have to trust his hand. God is at work. He has a plan. And it is going to work out for his good and for my good if I cooperate with him and walk along this path he's called me to. The second thing that Jesus told them about peace is this in this passage. Peace comes through resting in God's care. I know this sounds a little bit similar to what we just said, but there's a different emphasis here. Look at verse 23, please. Jesus says, In this day that is coming, after I am, after I am gone and then I'm here and so on, there's going to be a transition. Verse 23, In that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in that day, in my name he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will pray to the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. What we understand here about resting in God's care is this. There's a new privilege that Christ tells to the disciples right at that moment, and it's this, personal access to God. He said, here's what's been going on, fellas. We've been together for three years, and when you have a question, you come to me and say, Jesus, I have a question. Or when when you have a need, you come to me and say, Jesus, here's 5,000 people, and we don't have any food to feed them. What are we going to do? And he says, there's coming a day when you will no longer ask me a question. Now again, did he give them all the information? No, because if he'd given them all the information, he would have said, fellas, I'm going to flat out leave the earth and you're not going to physically be around me anymore after about 50 days from now. If he'd have said that, what would have happened to them? In our parlance, they would have freaked out. How can we possibly get along without you here? 
Even just the talk of his death caused some of that. So he didn't say that. He said, guys, look, there's coming a day when you're going to stop talking to me and you're going to start talking to the Father. Now, we don't grasp the significance of it, but for these folks, the significance was in the Old Testament, the average person didn't come straight to the presence of God to worship. They went through a priest. And he says, look, there's a fundamental change coming, a new privilege. It's personal access to God. We learn later in the New Testament that that is because of the work of Christ. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The work of Christ has made it possible that we can approach God personally. And the reason for that has to do with the forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament, sins were put on hold. When Christ died, sins were removed. When you believe in Christ as your Savior, God wipes your sin away. You are sinlessly perfect in the eyes of God. Now, obviously, we have work to do as we go day by day. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you are prepared to go into the presence of God. You are made fit to go into the presence of God. When I was a volunteer firefighter, we had special clothes to wear, and they're called turnouts. That's what, the, what, what they call the, the clothes, and I guess it's because you turn out in those clothes. I, I have no idea, but that's the term we used. And I kept my turnouts in the car, as all of the volunteer firefighters did. You take your, your pants and you push them down over your boots, and so you can step into the boots and pull the pants up, and instantly you're about half covered. You throw the coat on, put the helmet on, put the gloves on, and now you're fit to go onto the fire ground. Christian, when you accept Christ as your Savior, God makes you fit. He makes you prepared. He makes you ready. He makes you uh, sufficient to go into the presence of God. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is when I talk to God face to face. Um, certainly, I, I don't see him. I don't see him face to face, but I talk to him face to face. And that's a wonderful privilege that is ours. The disciples didn't know that, and they didn't have that sense of connection with God, and they didn't understand the whole uh, theological shift that was coming. But Jesus said, look, this is coming. And not only is, is your access to God coming, but there's a new th authority with which you will pray. Uh, look at verse 23. In that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. In John 14 he puts it this way, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus told his disciples and us that we could ask God for help under the authority of his name. When our kids were young, sometimes Sue and I would go out for a short while and leave our son in charge. He's the oldest of the three. We told the girls that he was in charge. He was, I don't suppose we said the words, he's acting on our authority, but we made it clear he's the boss. But what could he do in our absence? Could he burn the house down? Yes, that was a distinct possibility. <laughs> he was a boy. 
But all he could really do, especially toward them, was whatever he knew we would want him to do. We had communicated our authority to him. We did not give him unbridled uh, authority or liberty to do whatever he chose. We delegated our authority to him, and he was to conduct that uh, as we would. That's what Jesus says. He says, look, you can go to the Father and say, Father... Uh, in the name of Christ, I'm asking you for whatever it is that I'm asking. First John 5.14 puts it this way. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, according to his will, he hears us. Let me suggest some things that the Bible says are plainly God's will, um, and, and these are, I just give to you as examples, because obviously we all know that we can't go to God and say, God, in the name of Jesus, I want a Mercedes Benz, 2009, dark blue. Not one of those little ones, not one of those C-class jobs. I, I, want, an, I want an E. No, we obviously know that is not what Christ is saying. But he is saying we can go and say, God, please provide my daily bread. We know in the prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, you should pray for your daily bread. It's right to say, God, please provide for us. It's right to say, God, I need you to open the eyes of my unsaved friend because I can't do it. Would you please help him to see the truth? I know Jesus would want this. Would you please do this? God, please help me to get along with my neighbors. God, help me understand your word. God, help me persevere in this hardship. All kinds of things that we need and want, we have the authority to ask because it's what Christ wants. You know, I, I noticed something here that, that has escaped me before. Um, look at verse 23 again. Um, is that it? No. He says, in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. And then the other verse has left me here now when he says, the Father will give it to me. Um, uh, verse 14. He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit is going to glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What God tells us is that the Holy Spirit's ministry is accomplished in order to glorify Christ. And God the Father answers prayers in order to glorify Christ as well. Um, oh, well, it's there, but it's gone. So the Lord doesn't want me to make that point right now. Um, God wants to answer your prayers so that you will say, don't we have a great Savior? He doesn't want to answer your prayer to make you necessarily happy or to meet all of your desires. He wants to take care of you, he, but he wants to receive glory for himself and for Christ. There's a new privilege, personal access to God. There's a new authority in the name of Christ. And then there's a new aspect to our peace. Look at verse 27. For the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me 
and you have believed that I came from the Father. Um, how do we know that we love Christ? Well, here it is right here. If you love me, keep my commandments. And so if you want to evaluate yourself and say, do I love Christ? Then the question is, have you done his commandments? Which starts with believing in him as your Savior and continues on with the rest of the Christian life. But if you have loved Christ, if you have believed in Christ, and if you are following him, then you get the Father's love as well. Ask what... Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who if his son asks for bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish he will give him a serpent? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Here's the great peace that we ought to have through prayer. God has my best interest at heart. God has my best interest at heart. God loves me. God is not an ogre up in heaven that's sitting up there thinking, how can I make Dave Lunsford's life miserable today? You know? Here's a, here's a little bit of, uh, uh, what's the word, gruel? Uh, uh, you know, from the... Uh, you know, here's a little bit of gruel for breakfast, Dave. No, no, he loves us and he wants to do good for us. The Father's love for us means he will do as exactly what is best for us when we ask for his help. So we don't have to worry about how things will turn out. Oftentimes when we pray, we're saying, God, would you please do something exactly? And what we ought to pray is, God... I have a struggle. Now, I need your help. And when we pray and give our burdens to him, we can rest in the fact that he will do what is best. It may not be what we thought needed to be done. Circumstances may not turn out like we want, but they will turn out in the way that is best for us. That's what this verse means when it says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. It means this. You can rest in the care of God. You can rest in the care of God. You can communicate your concerns and your desires to Him and leave them there because you know God will do what's best. I was thinking about this this morning and I remembered something I haven't thought of for a long time. When our son was 15, he had to have his gallbladder out. And that's a, another whole story in itself. But when we went to see the surgeon, we said, you know, he's got this thing on his neck right up in here. surgeon looked at it and goes, that's ah, probably a swollen gland from an acne thing or something like that. Okay. Next time we went back to the surgeon, and he, he took a little measurement on it. We go back to the surgeon, and it was noticeably bigger. And the surgeon says, we should get that off right away. Well, now what are you going to do, mom and dad? You can either live in your anxiety. I went out and bought life insurance for my son, to be honest with you. I don't know what's going to happen. But I also went to prayer. I said, God, it's your man, it's your son. What are you going to do? You're going to live in your anxiety? You're going to live in God's care? there's only two choices. If you can believe 
If you can believe that God will do what is best, and just not to leave you hanging, it was just a, some kind of an acne thing that had gotten out of control, and doctor took it out, and that's the end of the story. Why did God let that happen? <laughs> I dare say to build a little more faith in mom and dad and Ben and maybe brothers, maybe sisters too, for all I know. <sighs> Why does God let anything happen? We need to believe that God loves us. That's why when we go to him in prayer, we can leave our burdens there. My dad has said to me many times, if you ever need anything, give me a call. Sometimes he'll call me and say, could you use 100? And I'll say, yeah. And he'll say, well, that's too bad. (laughs) (laughs) But there were a lot of times when he did more than that. And he said, hey, if you ever need anything, you ask. Okay? That's the way God is. He says, God says, do you need something? I'm here. I love you. I love you especially because you love Jesus. That's what this says. If we're going to have peace, we've got to go to him and leave our burdens there, knowing that he will do what is best. Well, there's a third element in this peace process that Jesus is wrapping up his message and giving these fellows. He says this, peace comes through walking on God's path. Yes, God wants to bring us his peace as we leave our burdens with him. But there is something for us to do as well. Look at verse 28, please. I came forth from the Father and I've gone, I've come into the world and I'm going to leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See now, you're speaking plainly and you're using no figure of speech. We are sure that you know all things and you have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, and it now has come that you will be scattered, each one to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you that you may have my peace, you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This entire message, these entire four chapters, the the entire ministry of Christ in some ways is wrapped up in verse 33. I have been talking to you so that you can have peace. He says you need to trust in God's plan. You need to rest in God's care. But you also must walk in the words I have spoken. I have told you all these things so that you can have peace. It's kind of obvious, but the greatest challenge to obedience is times of testing. It's easy for us. Come to church, sing some great songs. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. And we walk out the door, and we pull out onto the street, and kabam! Somebody hits us with their car. Now we're going to find out how much peace there is in your life. See? And that's what's going to happen to these fellas. Jesus said, do you really believe that I'm the Son of God, and that I'm the Savior of the world, and that you can trust me no matter what? Do you really believe that? He says, I'll tell you what's going to happen. In a short while, you're going to run like scared little kids. And that's what happened. Okay? Eventually, their faith did get strengthened. 
But here's the big point. He said, you're going to need to walk in obedience in just a short while. Did they do it? No. The apostle Peter said with an oath, which means he said, by the stars of heaven, I do not know this man. And the third time it happened, Jesus looked him right in the eye. I mean, he, he lied straight up to save his own skin within a few hours of this happening. The greatest challenge to obedience is trial. The greatest need for trial times is obedience. You see, when you walk in obedience to God during a trial, God gives you his peace. The only other alternative is to shape your world as you would see it and then pursue that by any means of human manipulation possible. And you run toward that thing, and things just get worse and worse, of course, when you do that. When you walk righteously in the midst of a trial, God gives you his peace. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. When the discouraging thing presents itself, we have a choice whether we're going to keep right on walking for God in righteousness or do something to manipulate the situation humanly. The whole nature of testing is this. Will you believe in God so much that you walk on his path of righteousness, especially when life is hard? Will you love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you? Will you refuse to use human tools of manipulation to control your world? instead of relying on prayer to a sovereign, loving Father? Will you patiently wait while God accomplishes his best, or will you take matters into your own hands? This last week, we had a horrendous crime committed in Ferndale. Murder of a mother and her child. Brutally murdered in a crime of passion. Uh, we, we may not know exactly who did it yet, but we know that whoever did it was was extremely, extremely uh, upset. And I don't say this glibly. It's safe to say that somebody was not living in God's peace. It's entirely possible that their world contained some very difficult hardships. I don't want to diminish that a bit. But what would it have been like if they had been living in Christ, if they had been walking on God's path? They could have experienced John 16, 33. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Literally, it says, be courageous, take courage, because I have spoken to you these things so that you might have peace. What about you, friend? Are you living in the peace of God? 
today. Heavenly Father, I have no doubt that every person hearing my voice is thinking about certain circumstances in their life as I am thinking about circumstances in my life. Because your Spirit does that with the Word of God. Father, help us. I have no doubt that you will challenge us in this area this week. Help us live in your peace. Help us to believe that you're at work. Thank you for being a loving Father. Help us to rest in that. I pray in Christ's name, amen.